Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, so supposedly there is now a new special 510K program from the FDA. Is it new? Is it sort of repackaging of the existing special 510K process? Well, one way to find out, tune in to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, where Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I talk about this new special 510K program. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And today, I've got my good friend and frequent guest from on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Mike, good morning. Good morning, John. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and, and your audience today. You're welcome. So... In the past few days, there's been quite a few um, industry articles, a couple of, of uh, things released from the FDA. There, there's a, apparently a new special 510K program and a, and a pilot uh, that, that is out there. And I thought today we could dive into that a little bit. I know I've had a chance to, to uh, read through this draft guidance and I'm quite sure you have as well. So, okay with you if we kind of explore what this is as a new, what does it mean? Absolutely, John. Looking forward to it. All right. So, maybe a good place to start before we dive too deep is just maybe a, a brief recap or an overview or review, if you will, of the different types of 510K. I mean, special 510K, what, what is that and why is it different than, than a normal 510K? So, maybe if you could give some, some context of the different types of 510Ks. I think that is a great place to start, John. And by the way, before I do that, just a quick comment. You know, you introduced what we're talking about today as the new special 510K as FDA is marketing it. But, you know, like many things, it really depends on what your definition of new is. Um, because as we'll talk about, I don't see a lot of new in here. But in any event, um, let's talk about, uh, for the benefit of, of your audience, um, there are three types of 510Ks that are currently recognized under the regulation, the traditional, the special, and the abbreviated. About 75% of 510Ks submitted to the agency today are the traditional. That's probably what most of uh, the audience is familiar with. The special 510K, which is the subject of today's conversation, um, represents about 21% of the 510Ks. And the most common scenario where a special 510K is used is where you're making a change to an existing medical device, a device that's already on the market. That change can be either in terms of labeling or in terms of design. And then the final type of 510K, not used very often, but it's actually one of my favorite, is the abbreviated 510K. Only about 4% of 510Ks go that route, although that number is changing a little bit with the new, um, what uh, what FDA is spinning as the alternative 510K, which you and I have talked about before in a previous podcast, John, I think it's really nothing more than the abbreviated 510K. So in a nutshell, the abbreviated 510K uh, relies on a, on a consensus standard or some uh, existing guidance to make that change. 
Um, I, I just thought it was interesting that the 510Ks have been around since 1976, and I did a quick search uh, in the guidance document database. To date, there are 161 guidances that FDA <laughs> has put out. Some, having something to do with the 510K. And actually, just a few days ago, FDA announced the new guidances that they're planning on either drafting or finalizing next year in 2019. Ten more 510K guidances are planned to come out next year. So I just find it interesting that um, the 510K wow. has been around for a very long time, and yet so many people are still trying to figure this out. Right. I mean, that's, I had no idea there were so many guidances on the 510k topic and plenty, uh, it sounds like plenty more to come in the, uh, in the coming year. Uh, that's kind of crazy. The question is, and, and I'll leave this as a rhetorical question for you and your, and your audience, John, are more guidances the solution to the, to the problem? You know, I'm not sure about that. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's something that uh, you and I have talked about, uh, more regulations, you know, in a sense, guidance is, uh, is sort of kind of a form of, of more regulation, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, that's that's certainly an interesting topic. But you know, one it does beg the question a little bit is as to why why is this what why are there going to be ten more guidances on five ten k in 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 twenty nineteen? I mean, and which kind of leads me to to the next question that's kind of on my mind is all right. So there's you know all this press about this quote new program, this new special five ten k program. But Mike, come on, is there really anything that's that's new with this, or is this just um, you know kind of spin? Well, that's a good question, John. And uh, listen, I'm, my intent here is not to be cynical, but rather to be realistic. I do think uh, there is not a lot new here. Maybe there's nothing new here, um, but we'll get to that in a second. You asked the question a moment ago, John, um, do we need all of these guidances or why do we have all of these guidances? I think the answer, quite frankly, is very simple. Obviously, the 510K is the workhorse of the medical device industry, and yet, so in other words, a lot of people, a lot of companies use it, but in my opinion, most people do not use it very well. As a matter of fact, most people use it quite terribly. When you look at the statistics, and we've talked about this before, the number of 510Ks that are rejected is just ridiculous. So some people think the solution is to create more guidance. I'm not sure. I think the solution is to, uh, is to get people to think. Um, and specifically with regard to this particular guidance, the special 510K guidance that just came out in draft form, uh, just wanted to let your audience know that um, according to FDA's uh, plan for 2019, this guidance is supposed to be finalized in next year in 2019. But I just want to rem remind <laughs> everybody in the audience that there is no such thing as a final guidance. You know, I've said to FDA so many times over the years, we should we should not use the term draft or final with respect to guidance because those terms are totally meaningless. I guarantee there will be another guidance along these lines sometime yeah. after the quote-unquote final guidance. Yeah. So please don't fall into that trap. It, I see a lot of companies do that. So anyway, back to your, your last question. Yeah, of, of what's, what's, what's new? I mean, is there something new here? Yeah, so let's basically talk about what this guidance does. So the, the, the one thing that is sort of new is that there is less focus on the change that you're making um, to the high-level labeling, the intended use, or the fundamental scientific t technology 
Um, and there's much more focus on the type of testing that you need to do in order to evaluate the change. Uh, and that, I think, is a good thing. Um, so, the, so is that new? Well, like I said earlier, it kind of depends on what your definition of new is. Perhaps it's new to the FDA. Perhaps it's new to many people in this industry. But it's yeah. absolutely not new to me. I mean, yeah. it's been my approach from the very beginning to focus on how do you determine, how do you measure, whether it's benchtop testing, whether it's subject matter experts, whether it's literature information, there's a, a litany of different ways, but how do you, how do you uh, establish that that change that you're making to your device does not change the safety, efficacy, performance, and so on of, of, the, uh, of the existing device? So in that regard, there's really nothing new here. Right. Um, Mike, I, I was just going to add that one of the things that I'll, new from, um, from a language standpoint and a guidance document, at least from my perspective, uh, specifically around 510Ks, again, not new, shouldn't be new to, to you or me or any other uh, of us in the industry, but it seemed like there was a lot more emphasis and uh, specific language around things like design controls and risk management uh, that... That, frankly, I don't know that I've seen a, a great deal in 510K guidances before. So did you find that, that interesting? You know, what do, you, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I did find that kind of interesting, John. You're right. It's never been spelled out, at least in those words, in uh, any of the other 510K guidances, at least that I can recall off the top of my head. I would have to fact check that, but I think you're you're probably right. Uh, but again, to me, that's not new because no, you know, it's not new. risk management, that's, you know, as an engineer, that's a no-brainer. When it comes to quality and design controls, that's an interesting one because many of the lower risk devices are not subject to uh, quality, uh, con uh, you know, having a QMS or design controls. As you and I have talked about before, that's not an excuse not to do those things. But from a regulatory perspective, you're not always required to. But, uh, but yeah, that is in addition to this particular guidance that I do think is worth noting. All right. So um, I know the other thing that I saw uh, about this is, um, you know, of course, there's there's a pilot program and I, I was trying to look at, OK, well, sometimes when FDA announces a pilot program, there's there's certain um, inclusion criteria, if you will. But the the details of the pilot program for me, to me anyway, uh, of the special 510K pilot program were somewhat vague and, and a little bit ambiguous. I mean, I. I don't know if, if you have uh, any insights that can make that a little bit clearer, but you know, any thoughts about this special 510K pilot program? Well, I do, John, but first I have to you know, ask you the question, is, uh, is vague or ambiguous regulation a surprise to you? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I've, uh, no, it's not. And I've learned that uh, from my, my good friend, Mike Drews, that um, use that to your advantage, right? So, That's um, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, That's it was not, exactly right. I mean, usually when there's a pilot program that FDA announces, there's, you know, it's, it's pretty clear, oh, well, I, as long as I do X, Y, and Z, then then I can be a part of this pilot program. And I, I suppose there was some of that there, but, but it was a little bit vague for me. So I don't know if you have any tips about, you know, whether so or not. Here, here's my yeah. understanding, not just of 
what it says on the guidance or FDA's website, but more importantly, my understanding of the intent of this program and the intent of this guidance, because it's not enough, in my opinion, just simply to read the words. We have to understand the intent. So first of all, this special 510K pilot program that you're referring to, it's actually only one of a few of these pilot programs, and we can provide for the audience links to the various websites to get more information. But basically, it's a, um, I'm not sure I would, to be honest with you, John, consider it to be a pilot program because uh, FDA's uh, criteria here now is that all uh, special 510Ks that are submitted after October 1st will now automatically be part of this pilot program. So on one hand, they say that it's a, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a it's an optional program. On the other hand, you know, all of the special 510Ks are going into it. So basically, it tries to simplify the process to improve the efficiency of the special 510K process. Remember, the most common reason why a company will submit a special 510K, and this has not changed at all since the special 510K was created about 10 years ago, is to make some sort of a change to an existing medical device, either a change in the design, a change in the labeling, and so on. So this basically, the in a nutshell, what it tries to do is it tries to improve the efficiency of that process. We can talk in a moment about whether we think it's going to do that or not. And one of the new things in the guidance that we've been referring to is FDA has included a new flowchart for companies to help evaluate whether a change should be submitted either via a traditional 510K or a special 510K. I have mixed feelings about flowcharts in general, John. I don't like <laughs> flowcharts very much because I can... I can use them. I can manipulate them to get any result that I want. Um, that you mean you mean the you mean the decision tree type of flowchart? The decision tree, yes, yeah. exactly right. Yeah, okay. And number two, I see a lot of people. They follow a flowchart. They come to to use your word one decision, but it's not the decision that FDA has come to using the same flowchart. So. Um, uh, so I don't think it's necessarily the best approach, but FDA suggests that maybe manufacturers might even include that in their QMS as part yeah. of their change control process. I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I do have a huge problem with the copy and paste mentality For that sure. so many people have today. Um, and so if you're going to do that, I think you need to personalize that flowchart. You need to add uh, more specific criteria in there based on your particular devices, based on your particular technologies, so you can use that flowchart uh, the way it's really intended to be used. Yeah. I mean, and, and folks, the the guidance document, and, and to Mike's earlier point, yes, we'll, we'll provide links to all of these articles and the uh, quote special 510K program pilot and as well as the, the draft guidance. But in that guidance document, there are this is a, a fairly simple um, uh, decision tree flowchart. Uh, it's, it's way simpler than the uh, previous decision tree flowcharts, like in on uh, from FDA, like deciding when to to submit a 510k for a change to a, uh, a device. You know that that flowchart is well, it's crazy. You got to goes on to one page and off to another page, and you know and that one gets a little bit tricky. But this one, this one's pretty simple, in my opinion. You know, there are you know, just a few key it, questions that... that it, um, is, it is 
yeah. it is simple, John. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to make a quick comment. It is simple. You're right. But think about it this way. As our technologies become more complex, as our devices become more complex, should our flowcharts and our thinking become simpler? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, but uh, uh, something to think blow about. my mind. Yeah. So, the, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the first question I think is important about you know, does this special five ten k program does it apply to you? The first question to consider is this your device? That's probably a, a, a pretty important question. Uh, to determine whether or not this might even whether or not this might even apply to you, don't you think? Well, yeah. I mean, what we're getting into now, John, is the criteria for the special 510K. How do you know if you can uh, do a special 510K or not? And the first question that FDA suggests is, uh, does the device belong to you or are you authorized to make changes to that device? You know, to be honest with you, John, I, I, I gee, what the heck kind of a question is this? Why do we need such a trivial question. But I suppose it might be that FDA has seen people come in with devices that belong to another company and they say, you know, we want to take this other guy's device, make a change to it and put our device on the market and do that as a special 510 yeah. as opposed to a traditional 510K. In my opinion, you know, anybody that tried to do that would be an idiot. You know, they shouldn't be in this business and we shouldn't need regulation. But you're right. That is the first uh, criteria. Uh, is the device that you're changing yours or are you authorized to, to talk to FDA about it? Yeah, I mean, I, um, sometimes uh, I've learned in life that rules are there because, um, well, um, somebody tried to do it the opposite of what the rules suggest. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I personally, I have not seen it done myself, but if that's a rule, then you're probably right. People have probably tried to do that. I mean, some of the other questions that are in, in this guidance, you know, as far as like uh, consideration criteria as to whether or not Special 510K applies, it. It's pretty basic stuff. Like, do I need testing to evaluate the change? I mean, is there ever a case? Uh, and you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be testing per se. But let me. Um, well, let's just keep it as is. Is there ever a case where I wouldn't need testing if I'm making a change to something, uh, a device of some sort? The short answer is yes, there are. And in fact, there could be a number of, of, of situations where you don't necessarily need to do testing, at least not in a physical sense, where you create new data. Fundamentally, the special 510K has not changed with regard to uh, this guidance compared, before, compared to before. What you have to be able to do, uh, and this is the intent of this entire regulation, is you have to be able to say to the FDA, here's the change that we've made to the existing device, whether it's labeling or technology or what have you. Yeah. Um, here's why we've made the change. And most importantly, here is how we demonstrate that that change does not uh, affect the safety, efficacy, performance of the, de of the device. Now, it's that last point that you're asking, how do we demonstrate that? So one way that we can demonstrate it is by doing physical testing that might be benchtop testing, that might even be animal or possibly even clinical testing. But there's a lot of other ways that we could then demonstrate it. Uh, we could demonstrate it by information from the literature. We could demonstrate it perhaps through use of real-world evidence. We could demonstrate it by um, having a bunch of subject matter experts, um, you know, cardiologists who use a particular catheter come in and say, hey, there's, you know, I've, I've 
used it this way and it doesn't make any difference. Uh, there are a litany of different ways. The, the most important thing is we have to demonstrate it, but how we demonstrate that that change uh, is not important is totally up to us. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you, the, the thing that I think could be missed, uh, you know, there's the possible misapplication of this particular question, is testing needed? Uh, it almost implies that if the answer is no, that maybe I don't have to do anything else. But that's not the intent behind this. You you still need that's to exactly right. Yes, let's analyze. Yeah, so, yeah. So even if you don't have to do new testing, you're exactly right. That doesn't mean that you don't have to do anything. It's up to us, meaning the the company, the manufacturer, to demonstrate uh, that whatever change that we're making uh, doesn't matter. How we demonstrate it again, that's totally up to us. But we do have to demonstrate it. And another question that I think a lot of people are asking about this, John, is uh, with this new guidance, is the actual content of the special 510K now somehow different? And the answer is absolutely not. This content of the special 510K today is exactly the same as it was uh, before this this quote-unquote new guidance came out. Um, it, as we talked about earlier, the focus of this guidance is on uh, how do we demonstrate that change is not significant? So yeah. back to the rhetorical question, is there really anything new here? You know, there was a French philosopher that said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. For That's sure. kind of the way I see it. <laughs> well, um, I, I did notice, though, that um, there, it seems as though FDA is being more deliberate in their adoption of um, like a design control and risk traceability matrice uh, to to be able to to show kind of that that how everything is connected and did you assess the changes and the risk and the the verification and validation that are incorporated with it so it's like FDA is you know somewhat adopting more of a traceability matrix type of approach uh, as far as presenting information as part of this do you, do you agree to that? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. I agree. Yeah. Um, and I can understand how, you know, for somebody like you, who is, you know, very astute in quality and design controls and risk management, um, you know, how, how that would uh, um, impress you, so to speak. But to me, that's common sense. That's basic engineering. I mean, wow. you know, again, yeah. not, not to go, not to be arrogant here, but I think any engineer who talks about making a change in a product without uh, as part of that analysis, considering how it's going to impact risk of that product, with all due respect, is an idiot, and they probably shouldn't be in this business. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, it, it, it impresses me because, um, you know, historically, there, there hasn't been that sort of um, explicit, uh, I'll say terminology or, or explicit uh, uh, guidance about doing so, but I'm 100% in agreement with you that a traceability matrix uh, for you know brand new device or especially for a change is important because if I'm making a change to something, I have to understand what is impacted by that change and and it really is a guide to help me determine you know where do I need where are my gaps where are my deficiencies where are the things that I need to update and address so folks traceability matrix is a, is by far and away it's a best practice it's been a best practice for medical device product development, design controls, risk, and, and design changes for decades now. Uh, and it's surprising to me, Mike, how, how many people still don't embrace a traceability matrix, a simple traceability matrix, 
And, well, you know, I think you're right, and I think it comes back to what you talked about a moment ago, John. Why do we have this new this this now in the guidance? I think you probably, and I wish I was wrong. Uh, you were wrong, but I don't think you are. I think probably there were a lot of instances where people made changes and did not do these things. Yeah. And I would like to think that they teach these things, you know, in engineering school. I know back in the day they used to, but I'm not sure. Maybe they don't today anymore. Well, I, I don't uh, I don't know. That. I've talked to a lot of biomedical engineering um, professors in, in recent months, and I, I do think there is a, a pretty big gap in what is being taught, specifically in the areas of like QARA uh, and biomed programs with what the expected industry practices are. And, you know, we're, and we're trying to do something about that at, at Greenlight Guru. And, and folks, you know, if you have any questions whatsoever about uh, traceability, what is it, how to do it, um, this is one of the things that we've, we've designed specifically for you as a medical device professional within the Greenlight Guru EQMS software platform. And that's a workflow to manage design controls and risk management very, very simply, and it's all interconnected. So if, if you're curious about that at all, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru uh, to learn more about how that, this software solution might be uh, an aid to you to help you uh, better communicate and organize information about design and development activities. And I, I want to remind folks too that I'm talking with Mike Drews. Mike is with Vascular Sciences, and, and he and I are... Um, talking a little bit about this uh, new quote, I'll use quote, special, new special 510K program from, from FDA. Um, so Mike, let's, let's kind of, I want to think about a little bit about, um, you know, if I'm making the criteria, if I'm making a change to, so the product has to be my product um, and, you know, we can define what my product means uh, to, to even be considered in, as part of this special 510k, but if I'm making a change to that, uh, you know, when do I need to submit a special 510k for a change that I'm making versus just doing a, a letter to file? Well, you know, John, that is the proverbial, not million dollar question, but billion dollar question that, uh, quite frankly, this guidance doesn't address. Uh, to be fair, the focus of this guidance is the special 510K, so the underlining assumption is that you are going to notify FDA uh, via some sort of a 510K, whether it's special or possibly the traditional. Um, if, if you were, if the change was not significant enough that you don't need to notify FDA at all, um, then you probably would not be referring to this guidance. So it's not a criticism of FDA, but when you look at that, uh, and now what we're getting into, John, is the, is the topic of change management. What we're, what, when you look at guidances across the board, in my opinion, none of them go anywhere even close enough to, to answering the question that you just asked. And this is a topic of a completely different discussion. I know you and I have talked about this before, and I actually was fortunate to do a, a webinar for Greenlight.Guru specifically on change management. Maybe we can um, uh, include a link to that for the benefit of the audience. But let me just remind the audience of one thing. The, the more uh, 483s, more warning letters are issued by FDA to companies in the area of change management than for any other reason. It's an area that I think this industry does a pretty terrible job at. So that's a topic of a whole different discussion. Using 
the special 510K and the flowchart and the criteria and this pilot program and everything else. The underlining assumption of all of that, of course, is that the change is significant enough that we need to notify the FDA and that we should not use a letter to file. So I would back the truck up a few feet before getting into this conversation of uh, whether a special 510K is appropriate or uh, do you need to do a traditional 510K? The question that you ask, the question that you need to ask even before all of that is, do you need to notify the FDA of this change um, uh, to begin with? Because if yeah. the answer to that question is no, and you do a letter to file, then this whole special versus traditional or whatever is a, is a, is a moot point, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, as quickly as I can, that's my, my quick two bits on, on the change management piece. Yeah, well, on, um, kind of on that topic, you, you mentioned something I think is pretty important, that change management is, is, a, is a big issue in industry. And, and to your point, we as an industry are, are um, at best probably doing a poor job of, of, of change management. Do you think it's that, that um, and so I'll ask you to speculate a little bit. Do you think it's because um, companies are just, they're not making good decisions? Do you think it's that they're not documenting th their decisions? Do you have any thoughts uh, on why? Yes, I actually do, John. I, I have thoughts on most things. <laughs> I actually do. And here, here is, as an engineer, what I call the root cause of this. It's not, you know, it's not to say that people don't think about these things or they aren't aware. No, no, no. I think it's, quite frankly, most people and most companies, and I suppose this is human nature, they want to take the path of least resistance. So most companies, they want to avoid the FDA if they possibly can. They want to do a letter to file if they possibly can because they don't have to notify, obviously, FDA. And most problematic to me, John, as an engineer, a lot of people, of course, I'm stereotyping. There are exceptions. But a lot of people look at the letter to file as a lower uh, regulatory burden, if you will, than issuing uh, or submitting a special 510 Yeah, that's true. And in my professional opinion... The regulatory burden, whether you do a letter to file or a special 510K, is exactly the same. In other words, you have to do the same analysis, the same testing, the same documentation. The only thing that's different is what you do with that information. In one situation, you might just take right. that information and put it into a folder in your three-drawer file cabinet. And again, I know I'm dating myself, but this, yeah, is, exactly you are. Why <laughs> but this is exactly why we still call it a letter to file. Yeah. In another situation, we might take exactly that same information and put it in a special 510K and submit it to FDA now as part of this pilot program. So All right. I think that the, the information is the same. Yeah, so said another way, uh, I think what I'm – if I'm reading between the lines a little bit, uh, maybe the practice, the bad practice that, that companies have um, implemented is that they look at letter to file as doing less work uh, and that you know, oftentimes they may choose that path and they don't have uh, the corroborating evidence to rationalize or to support the decision that they made about uh, doing a letter to file versus a special 510K or, or some other sort of uh, submission or communication to the FDA. So folks, hear what Mike's saying. Um, you still have to do the work. You still have to do the analysis and, you know, if appropriate testing and so on and so forth, the letter to file is not a, is not a quick pass. Uh, you, you still have to do the work. 
Um, Absolutely. And, and as tempting as it would be, because I know you and I both do a lot of work in this area, um, I would I would suggest that we either continue this conversation with another podcast, or as I said, we can review people to the refer people to the webinar that I do on this topic. Yeah. This is a topic that not only is it important because, as I said, generates a lot of warning letters, warning letters, but perhaps even more important, it's it's a huge source of product liability. When, uh, when, 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 when people are, are, are injured and, you, and the company gets sued. So it's a very important area. For sure. And uh, folks, Mike has mentioned uh, this um, webinar that he did with Greenlight uh, Guru. So it is available on demand on the Greenlight Guru website. And uh, we'll, we'll get a link to that too. So you can uh, easily access that. Uh, very easily. So, I think the last thing to, to yeah. talk about, John, before we wrap this up, to get a little more pragmatic is, assuming that we do make a change to an existing medical device, assuming that we are authorized to make that change, that it's our device, assuming that the change is significant enough that we need to uh, notify FDA, and finally, assuming that the special 510K and this special 510K pilot program is the way to go, what happens next? So basically, yeah. the company submits the special 510K, and as I said a moment ago, the content of the special 510K is exactly the same as it was prior to this uh, to this guidance. And, 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 and one thing I should mention, John, to try to make this more palatable to uh, to, to, to companies to do this, because I don't want to use regulation or or FDA as an excuse to hold us back. You know, regrettably, John, there are medical device companies out there. Uh, including some of the largest medical device companies on earth who has made as a matter of company policy have said to their R&D engineers, do not make changes or improvements in your medical devices that we cannot handle via a letter to file. In other words, if you make too much of a change, we're going to have to go notify FDA and we don't want to do that. As an engineer, John, that makes my blood pressure just jump yeah. through the roof because there's no better way to stifle innovation uh, and create disincentives for improvement than to do something like that. So a special 510K, here's the reason why I'm mentioning this, a special 510K is, a, forget about the content, forget about the, uh, you know, what, what FDA expects to see in it. The special 510K is actually much simpler than the traditional 510K because the only information that's important in the special 510K is the information directly related to the change. In other words, right. you don't have to show that the device is substantially equivalent or any of that other stuff. You just have to uh, talk about the change and why did you make that change and most importantly, how do you demonstrate that the change is not significant? So the amount of heavy lifting for a special 510K, if the traditional 510K that you did before was good, the amount of heavy lifting for the special 510K is pretty minimal. So basically, you know, coming back to the pragmatic, so we submit yeah. the special 510K, FDA uh, looks at it, and uh, they basically say, yes, we agree with it, that it can be a special 510K, or no, we don't. And in that case, you know, they would maybe recommend a traditional 510K. And by the way, even if FDA recommends a traditional 510K, if the company still feels that it is justifiable to do a special 510K, you can push back. You can uh, say, you know, with all due respect, here we disagree and here are all the reasons why. And according to the guidance, FDA is intent, uh, intention is to respond within 30 days, to make that decision within 30 days. But 
please notice I, as well as FDA, are parsing their words very carefully. Their intention is to respond within 30 days. That doesn't mean that they actually will. (laughs) And I see a lot of people uh, fall into that trap as well. But here's the problem that I have. If the intention of this whole new guidance in this pilot program is to increase the efficiency of this process, I don't see how that's going to do that. I see what's really missing here is a mechanism where the company can go to the FDA in advance of any formal submission, uh, special 510K, for example, to get uh, sort of, even if it's an informal thing, a meeting of the minds, you know, hey, do we have, you know, based on the change that we're proposing here, do we have a reasonable chance that this would be appropriate for a special 510K? Because if a company submits a special 510K and it's rejected by the FDA, and now we have to do a traditional 510K, that's been a colossal waste of time. For sure. Right. So if the idea here is to increase the efficiency, what I would suggest is we need to create a mechanism, perhaps another form of a pre-sub, uh, and you know me, John, I'm a huge fan of the pre-submission process, yep, where we can take this to the FDA informally and say, hey, here's the change that we're, that we're proposing. Here's the testing that we've done to show that, it's, that, that you know, it doesn't impact safety, efficacy, performance, yada, yada, yada. Do we have a reasonable chance of having a meeting of the minds? Is it worth our time to, to submit a special 510K? And I would love to see maybe even a page limit. I've, I've done a lot of work recently with the FDA Innovation Initiative uh, specifically for opioid uh, addiction. And one of the interesting things about that is it had a seven-page limit, right? So maybe we can submit to the FDA a executive summary of a few pages. You know, if you can't argue, you know, that the change is not significant, at least at a high level in seven pages, then yeah. that's... You might have your answer. You might have your answer. Right. Right. So if we're really interested, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, collaboration and so on. If we're really interested in working together, both companies as well as FDA, these are the kinds of things, these are kind of discussions I think we need to be having. Because at the end of the day, uh, if you submit your special 510K and FDA comes back and says, no, this is not appropriate for a special 510K, then you've just wasted a ton of time and who knows how much money. Yeah. Well, folks, hopefully this is giving you a lot more insights into, you know, the the special 510K in general, Uh, you know, to Mike's earlier point, probably not anything substantially new with this new guidance or with this new pilot program, Um, maybe a, a slight repackaging of things that you should have already been doing to begin with. Um, and maybe just bringing, you know, maybe the intent behind this is to, to bring uh, this this pathway to your attention. Um, because as Mike pointed out earlier, uh, if you look at all the different types of 510Ks, the traditional is, is still, you know, about 75% of 510Ks are in that traditional uh, space, whereas the special 510K is about 20, 21%, something around there. So maybe this is just bringing more attention. Maybe... FDA is seeing traditional 510Ks being submitted that could have uh, been candidates for special 510Ks. I mean, some of it is who knows, but but um, but do pay attention to this because you know, if, if especially if you have a history of devices that have already been cleared, this this might be a good program or a good pathway uh, for you to consider. 
Um, but you know, use all of the tools that that are available to you. You know, whether that be uh, you know analysis of of your change and and doing the letter to file route, or you know even a pre submission uh, might be a good way to to uh, go as well. So that way that you you as a company are being as efficient as you can, rather than assuming this is going to be a a special 510k only to find out that FDA doesn't agree with you. So realize that there's some strategy that, that you can use to your benefit from this. So Mike, before we wrap things up, any last thought or two that you have with the audience? Yeah, so just a couple of the takeaway messages for the audience, John. Uh, and I do very much appreciate the uh, opportunity to have this conversation. I hope that the folks in the audience have found it to be beneficial. Just a few things to take away. First of all, one of FDA's motivations for introducing this guidance and this pilot program is to increase efficiency, efficiency within the agency as well as efficiency working between the agency and companies. I just talked a moment ago about how I think we can improve further efficiency between the company and the agency. But within the agency itself, FDA is hoping that uh, it will tip the balance uh, so to speak, as you just mentioned, you know, the, the vast majority of 510Ks are the traditional and uh, only about 20% are special. It requires less resources to review a special 510K. Obviously, it's simpler than a traditional 510K, and FDA is hoping that it will tip the balance in that direction. In reality, I'm not sure that's going to happen because, yes, it could potentially um, draw some of the traditional 510Ks into the special category, but it also might draw some of the letter to files into the FDA as a special 510K. FDA, quite frankly, has no idea whatsoever how many letter to files actually happen in the real world. Nobody does because they're not submitted anywhere. But because I work with a lot of different companies, John, and I know you do as well, there are a heck of a lot of changes yeah. that are made in the medical device industry that the FDA is not told about. Um, so that's one uh takeaway. Uh, another one is, will this improve the efficiency of the process? Well, it won't if you submit a special 510K and it's rejected. So we need to have a mechanism, and we can do it either within it, probably with an existing pre-sub, um, but I would like to see a mechanism carved out specifically for this. Also, one last thing to, to just remind people of, we didn't really talk about it here, but in the area of change management, it's something I call uh, change creep. Most of your audience is probably familiar with predicate creep. Change yeah. creep is the same way. So if we do a series of changes as letters to file at some point, even though those changes in individually might not be significant when you add them together, uh, you, you, that could be a significant change. So there is something in the regulatory vernacular called a catch-up 510K. It's not regulated. It's, sorry, it's not recognized in the regulation. Uh, but I see this quote unquote new special 510K being an opportunity to be, um, you know, to take advantage of notifying FDA of, of previous changes that we've made to the device that maybe we didn't notify the agency. Yeah. Uh, so that's another way that we can use this particular submission type. And then finally, for anybody that is interested, and we can put a link on the website, uh, CDRH does have a webinar coming up 
in November where they're going to talk about the special 510K. I suspect, and again, this is not a criticism, but I suspect that the webinar is really going to be not much more than somebody reading the content of the guidance. That's uh, essentially what most <laughs> FDA webinars are. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, to, to be fair, FDA's job is to tell you the rules of poker. It's not their job to tell you how to win the game. Right. right. So what you and I are doing here, we're talking about not just the rules, but more importantly, how do we win the game? Yeah. Mike, you've, you use poker references a few times in conversations that I've had with you. So um, maybe one of these days you and I can can sit down and at a table and play some Texas Hold'em or something. So uh, <laughs> I would love that, John. <laughs> All right. Well, um, once again, thank you so much for uh, taking some time uh, to to talk with our audience about the special 510k program. Again, folks, I've been talking with Mike Drews. Mike is with Vascular Sciences. Uh, he's a, a regulatory guru, a regulatory genius. Um, this is this is his chosen profession, and folks, he's damn good at it. So if you um, have any questions uh, about how and what and when and strategy uh, when it comes to regulatory, you should contact Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. And again, if you, um, you're looking to build your QMS or you know, improve your efficiency internally with uh, things like managing design controls, design history files, design changes, risk management, uh, all the things that go along with that, I would encourage you to head on over to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about the Greenlight Guru eQMS software platform designed specifically for and by medical device professionals. So this has been your host, the founder and VP of quality and regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.